The following podcast is a proud member of the Blue Collar Roots Network. Find all the shows by visiting bluecollarroots.com. Think of this show in this way. Rush Limbaugh and Howard Stern had a child, and that child grew up to have a podcast about building science. This is the opposite of that. Here's Bill Spone. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where it's our goal to create better and more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians. Essentially, by helping these two professions better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. I'm your host, Bill Spohn. I've been working in the HVACR and building performance markets for almost 30 years. And I've noticed the need for scientifically rooted information on how to do a job technically correct. Sometimes this information is either not taught or easily accessible. So I'm trying to bridge that gap by hosting and running the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Today we'll be speaking with Chris Dorsey, who is the founder of HabitatX. And that's a conference I just returned from last week. We'll be talking about the future of housing and reflections on the 2018 HabitatX conference. We'll be talking about how this is a really human-centered, oriented conference, and that's really what it, this is about. It's about where people live, the homes that they live in. We'll touch upon a variety of timely topics, passive house construction, healthy homes, material disclosures, and generating consumer demands. And really, if you do one thing, you should really check out the Habitat X Journal, which is now published on medium.com. You can access it from a smart device or directly from a web browser. And it would be medium.com forward slash Habitat dash X dot dash journal. That's Habitat dash X dash journal. Check it out. So let's listen to Chris talk with me about the reflections on the 2018 Habitat X conference. Oh, and if everything worked out okay, you should be able to listen to Carpool BS. You'll figure out what that is midway through this episode. Welcome back to another edition of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Today we are very pleased to have with us Chris Dorsey, who is the founder of Habitat X. Habitat X is a conference, it's a gathering, it's a think tank, it's so many different things. Chris and I just met at the most recent 2018 edition of the Habitat X conference in Big Sky, Montana last week. Hey, welcome, Chris. Thanks for hosting me, Bill. I'm really, really glad to be here. Fantastic. There's so many things that went on last week, and we just had just a little prep before this conversation started. We talked about the human aspect, the human element of things. Tell me about that. That's you, man. <laughs> You're a people person. You work fantastically with a group face-to-face. -face. Sort of give us a little bit of your journey to this point where you decided to do Habitat X, to do it. Well, in fact, Bill, my journey to this point and a lot of the work we do at Habitat X is indeed hard-edged. It's mathematical, it's scientific, it's about business and industry and finance and government. But the human aspect of it, of course, is what actually makes it all tick because I've really found in this day and age that we all have plenty of resources, plenty of information we can get to. We can all study online. We have remote collaboration tools like this podcast. But in the end, boy, we've discovered that the synergy of a face-to-face -face event cannot be beat. And there is still plenty of room for that. And I feel like we got some really good work done last week that probably wouldn't happen if there hadn't been a group of people there looking at each other for three days. Absolutely. And what a beautiful 
location to have such an event. I know I personally, I, my wife and my son and I spent a few days touring the natural elements, doing a couple hikes in the area. It's really breathtaking. It's really the kind of place I think you wouldn't mind if people were staring out the window, would you? <laughs> well, we've always said that Habitat X is about that meeting of housing, culture, and environment. And so we're building scientists, absolutely. We're also really curious how people operate. And in the end, we recognize that our housing has the opportunity either to either add to or detract from our environment. So it seems like a real great intro to the conference that you got to immerse yourselves in the beautiful outdoors of Montana. I'm really glad you could make it and glad you brought your family too, as did many other people. Yeah, that's true. In part, this podcast is meant to promote the event. So Chris will have details on that coming up shortly at HabitatX.com. You'll be able to see what uh, next year's event will look like. So let's take a walk through the agenda. It was three days, the 27th through 29th of June, just last week. So tell me about how did you create the agenda, structuring the agenda? How does that come about? Well, the style of the agenda has evolved a lot over the years. We've learned a lot about how people operate, how people think, what people expect when they get to a conference. And so we have a pretty solid agenda, what we call topic sessions scattered throughout those three days. But we do spend about a half a day when we first get there in the sessions that we call laying the groundwork and strategic analysis. And in those sessions, we present the work we'll do later in the week, but we ground truth it because we work with the advisory board to build this agenda agenda over, well, we're starting now on the 2019 agenda, really. And we have a pretty good idea what is topical, what people are interested in, where work needs to be done. But we also like to fact check it the, the morning that the conference starts to throw it out there and see what kind of response we get and watch those responses in ways that will help us subtly guide and adjust the agenda over the ensuing three days. We also engage in I guess really they're trust building exercises. We learn how we're all going to work together. We make sure everybody is heard. We figure out where the expertise is in the room, who knows what, and who's going to be collaborating together and who already knows each other. And we build a team because as we dive into this really kind of powerful and very, very meaningful and really helpful work that we're doing for each other, we need to have the ability to work together fluently. And we do that. And it is stunning to me, Bill, you, you've seen it because you're one of the most reliable guys at this conference, I think, right from the start, that I am very, very impressed what a group of several dozen people can do together when they agree to work together. And part of what we do that first day is sort of get that agreement and figure out what we're going to do. Speaking of the people aspect, I think we could drop a couple names here. Do you think that's appropriate? Go right ahead. Yeah. Some of the people that came, the cross-section, where will I start? I'm looking at the list right now. I'm looking at the list. Jacques Tillon, Tom Carter, Megan Elise Carroll, Ryan Miller, Sam Myers, Clint Shireman, Bill Spohn, Chandler Von Schrader, Michelle Nochasowski, Robin LeBaron, Ed Matos, Griffin Hagel, Luis Grenier, Gleason, Casey Murphy, Lindsay Shack, Dan Maximu, Chris Jack Duffy, Susan Davison, Johnny Lang, John Patty, John Davey, Kim DeVoe, Kevin Brenner, Colin Genge, Steve Baden, Rick Blumenthal, Kelly Forrester, Jay West, Joe Medosh, James Childry, Wayne Hartel, Mick Prince, Charles Sagerson, Linda Hawk. Rob Howard and Bill Spohn Jr., yours truly. Wow. It's quite a collection. People came from weatherization. I see some people from Chicago, Illinois weatherization, CETA in particular, also utilities, PG&E, Charles, Charles Sagerstrom. It's really interesting how many times you had to sort of rope people back in from having these separate sidebar conversations to get back to the main agenda. Uh, I think that's very telling in terms of the synergies that were being developed there just as we met there together. 
When I look around the room at the people that have been involved in Habitat X since its inception seven years ago, I recognize, well, and people have said specifically that they're not working on projects with people they met at Habitat X. So while we have a pretty full agenda, we sure try to just stand back and leave room for people to make friends and develop collaborations. It's happening all the time. It's kind of magic. One of the first sessions that was on a Wednesday afternoon was policy and politics. That was very interesting. It, that had Tom Carter from Efficiency First, Steve Baden from ResNet, Susan Davison, and Ryan Miller from the North Carolina Building Performance Contract Association, I believe. Do you have any major takeaways from that session, that segment? People who work policy at the highest level are really not as concerned about the current politics, maybe as others. So what one person will suggest means the sky is falling. Another person says, well, gee, that's politics. And the people who are most effective lobbyists who have worked with policymakers and decision makers over the years are really, really good about not making enemies and about finding common grounds. And one beautiful thing about the work that all of us do, whether you think of yourself as working in HVAC or construction or home performance or sustainable housing or green building and various flavors of kind of related things, these are kind of mom and apple pie issues. They tend to cut across political boundaries because, in fact, it's only smart to design and build and manage the best buildings possible. That tends to affect everybody left and right and up and down the economic scale. So we are fortunate in many, many ways that our work is not as politicized as that of maybe some of our colleagues out there right now. So we have the smart money on our side. And I think that's the thing I heard from the policy wonks in the room. And I mean, gosh, the expertise runs pretty deep. You guys like Steve Baden, who've been doing this for 40 years now. You got guys like Ryan Miller, who are half the age of Baden, but who spent half his career on Capitol Hill. And you got somebody like Susan Davison, who has worked all over the state of California in various realms of policy. And I mean, California is basically like the fourth largest country on the planet. <laughs> and uh, you guys like Tom Carter, who were, who were running Efficiency First, arguably, you know, one of the largest sort of representations of, or one of associations of uh, high performance contractors in the country who's been on Capitol Hill a lot. And all of these people are telling me, it's just like, hang on, the winds that are back, continue to do our good work and continue to tell the story. Absolutely. And speaking of telling stories, we had three people, three new Habitat X fellows. What is the fellowship? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the fellowship has taken on a life of its own. When we first launched this thing several years ago, we thought, well, we have enough spare money, I guess, on the coffee fund at Habitat X. We're going to sponsor one up and coming young person under 40 years old and ask them to basically write an essay, tell us why they want to join us and what they're going to do and send us an inspirational video. And I think I said this at the conference, I've never looked at one of these videos and I wasn't just in tears of joy because these fabulous <laughs> people show up. And We've gone from one to two at a time to this year, three at a time. We've had generous sponsors making that happen. And this year we anointed uh, Clint Shireman from Kanoff Installation and Megan Elise Carroll from the National Association of Home Builders and Sam Myers from Retrotech as fellows. And boy, they were players. And combined with the fact we have three other fellows still in solid circulation and support in Habitat X, we're being successful in our initiative to push the age down as much as we can to make sure this is a as young an organization as we can make it. Fantastic. You mentioned the other fellows that were there and that the other fellows formed something called the Brighter Energy Collective. 
Describe that. What's your impression of that? So the Brighter Energy Collective was founded as a consortium of three previous fellows, Griffin Hagel, Michelle Nochasaki, and Ed Matos. And they recognized when they got to Habitat X and started working together that not only is there a tremendous template or format there for smart and sort of fast-moving collaboration, but that they recognize a subsector, which is the fellows themselves, that they recognize could do some good work together too. So they formed a loose-knit collaborative. Again, I guess their own description is, is you know, up-and-coming young professionals that are working in high-performance housing over on the residential side of both new and existing housing in the U.S. And so they are actually now the umbrella organization under which we manage the Habitat X Fellows. So not only did uh, some of the oldsters like me turn around and give a hand up to young folks, but then those very young folks turn around and just gave a hand up to their peers. All right. They're teaming up on us, Chris. So it's good. It's very, very gratifying. The Brighter Energy Collective has had some real good success. And I don't doubt when we look back in five or 10 or 30 years that a lot of the people who make up, have been part of this fellowship, are going to be some real movers and shakers. And I'm just feeling super honored to have them in the room right now. Yes, it is a very nice group of people, and it will be very gratifying when this all comes about, as I'm sure it will. In addition to just stretching your mind when you come to Habitat X, you also provide an outlet for stretching your body, <laughs> the morning yoga sessions, right? Yeah, so that evolved just this year. It's been an obvious thing because we're basically housed in paradise at this event. Absolutely. I started noticing as sort of as a moderator, I'm there in the room and coffeeed up by seven o'clock every day, getting things prepared. But I started noticing all these people trickling in in their running clothes or, you know, in athletic clothes, people that have already gotten up in the dark sometimes or as early as they could. And they've been out at outdoors getting some exercise because well, the event is we are in chairs for six or eight hours a day. And when you've got sort of nature calling outside, uh, people sort of find time to sneak in exercise. So this year, uh, Kelly Forster, who's actually an eighth grade teacher up in Barrow, Alaska, uh, offered to host yoga sessions every morning at, uh, at 645. And Kelly's just back from a training event in Western Europe as a newly minted yoga teacher. And so she led those sessions. So we had people pretty well loosened up by the time they hit the conference chairs at 830. <laughs> nice, nice. We also did a ton of walks. There was evening events outdoors. And Saturday, the day after, about 10 of us wandered up into one of the basins above Big Sky, Montana. So we, we get plenty of exercise out there. Was there snow up there? We did walk out to some snow drifts. Uh, I hate to say it, it's the longest days of the year, but there are places in Montana where there's still snow piled in there. So the conference takes place at about 7,000 feet and you're going uphill from there. There you go. So on Thursday, moving into the Thursday agenda, I'm looking here, we had uh, Lindsay Shack and Lotus Grenier Gleason, who are from Love Shack. And they talked about the practical passive house details. However, I don't think we can leave that phrase love shack behind. You got to give us the definition. What does that name mean? I can assure you, I promised them not to play the B-52s when they came into the room. <laughs> it was a part of their contract. I couldn't do that. They're simply a pair of architects who formed a practice actually here in my hometown of Bozeman, Montana, not far from the conference center. There's a pair of Lindsay's, uh, Lindsay Love and Lindsay Shack, and Shack spelled S-C-H-A-C-K. And yes, when they decided to form their consultancy, it wasn't because of the name, but at some stage when they're looking at the branding consultants, they couldn't avoid the obvious. So, yep, it's Love Shack architecture, but 
more to the point, they are really smart and active architects who are taking advantage of the great building boom going on in this corner of Montana right now and gathering up clients who understand and will support the idea of passive house structures. And so they're having a real impact on passive house construction in the Rocky Mountain West, which makes them kind of relevant around the country. And so Lindsay and her associate Lotus did present a session on Thursday. Really, really fun to see. We had about as close to a happy conflict as you ever get to see in a conference. We had architects and engineers and builders and tradesmen. And you know what it's like, Bill, when you get these people in the room, pretty much everybody knows exactly what works best. And they're not really convinced that what anybody else does is ever going to work. Right. <laughs> and so I was quite happy to put Lindsay and Lotus sort of in that firing line and let them defend what it is they know about passive house which is very, very smart. And are the details up in the air? Heck yes. But that's the case with any new technology. And not to dive into the weeds too deeply, I'll just do it for a few seconds. But one of the biggest sort of surprise discussions there was how do you actually detail a rim joist in airtight construction? And those of you who can draw architectural drawings in your mind recognize that there's a discontinuity in the air barrier there sometimes, especially if you think the air barrier is at the inside of the wall. But suffice it to say that there's enough intelligence and experience in the room that we work through those details and we're going to get it right. I'm really happy to have Passive House in the mix these days. I really have always believed, Bill, that any of these high performance details, whether on the construction side or over in the HVAC side, really have to pass the litmus test of reality because we know that designers and engineers and program managers, they can envision and design stuff that nobody could ever really build. And so I like putting those groups of people together to figure out what's real. Absolutely. One of the takeaways I got from Lindsay's discussion there in Lotus was they talked about using the Tesla model in terms of working the kinks out on a this new, very progressive, very technical, detailed construction called Passive House. And we're working it out with home buyers who sort of had larger budgets, perhaps. And maybe that's part of what does uh, feeding them with the building boom in Montana so that they can work out the kinks and then bring it down to, so let's say, less expensive homes, so to speak? It is a, a common complaint, which I've probably lodged myself, that if you have a construction type, which is just the exclusive domain of the wealthy, then they really haven't done much for the world besides make one more type of trophy house. But what we have learned in the construction world is that all builders are essentially conservative. And I know because I used to be one and you don't really want to be experimenting with new details. So if somebody wants to make a, they want to build an $8 million passive house and figure out some of the details and bleed a little bit around the edges as they get it done, that's a great place to have a test case, not when somebody else is trying to build a more modest house. So part of what we talked about with uh, Lindsay and Lotus of Love Shack was how to peel off some of these individual details so the rest of us can use them, even those who are not building a passive house. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was really, like you said, a lively discussion and I learned a lot from it. I had one of the people who was disagreeing sitting right behind me. So I got to hear some <laughs> muttered under breath, interesting arguments that did get resolved and everyone walked away friends. Okay. What's happening here next is a little segment I like to call Carpool BS. What's happening is there are four of us traveling down the mountain from Big Sky, the Big Sky Resort where the Habitat X conference was held, down to the airport in Bozeman, Montana. Really, the three voices that you'll hear will be Susan Davison, Bill Spoon Jr., and Robin LeBaron. You could probably figure that out as you hear the conversation here where they talk about consumers, appraisals, their impressions on the conference, solar energy, 
And I love Robin's quote here, sliding down the slippery slopes of technical details, something that we do in the building science community. Get your slip and slide out and listen up to this little interesting interlude. So I hit the YouTube and I'm watching the YouTube. It's like a 25 minute YouTube and it's Paul McCartney. And he's in town where he grew up, the city where he grew up. Which is not Manchester. I don't don't know if it's Liverpool or where it is, but he's in the car with a guy. And so it's this long version. So they start singing in the car and they're kind of messing around, right? And he's like saying, well, that's where I sang in the choir. And that's where my brother got married. And that's the pub that I started singing in. And you're like, what? And then they went into the pub and pulled the curtain. And nobody knows they're there. And the guy goes, go over and push the jukebox and pick any song you want. And this lady goes over and pushes the jukebox. The curtain opens up and it's Paul McCartney singing on the stage, whatever <laughs> song they pushed. And then the pub just gets explodes, right, with people. It's a really funny YouTube. So it's like, that's what a Bill might end up, is it? Bill might end up with some YouTube pods. We'll never know. It'll be some karaoke for him. All right, Bill Jr., what did you think of the conference? This was your first one. So the conference, there's a lot of good people there, a lot of big ideas, but a lot of work to do. A lot of different minds talking about pretty much the same thing, kind of just really trying to focus everybody's attention on the strategic plans and the action plan that Chris was working on. It was eye-opening for me. I enjoyed everybody there. Everybody was very nice to me being there for the first time, being so young and not knowing much about whatever they were talking about. So they were really trying to push down the average age. but So this is the first time you've been here. Right. And so you're going to go home today, and you're going to go back to work, and people are going to ask you what you did, where were you, and you're, so how are you going to explain this? What's your takeaway? What's your elevator speech on this conference? Just say it's, like I was saying before, it's just a conferring of the big minds in the industry. Sure, we don't have the CEOs of every company there, but we have the people who really care about indoor air quality, energy efficiency, and just really care about trying to move how we do things forward and into the next phase of really life, I'd say. All right. So, Robin, you were on a panel in a room full of 40 people, and the topic was real estate, world, and also valuation. Talk about what your experience was and the depth of knowledge in the room. What did you learn and then what surprised you when you were participating in that panel? Because there was an amazing amount of engagement with you in that panel. I did think it's interesting that the energy efficiency industry really has engaged with this issue of real estate. I wasn't quite sure what to expect in terms of people's background, but it was clear that people knew the basic issues. They at least heard of the appraisal addendum. Uh, many of them, they recognized the challenge of making value visible in the real estate change as a real fundamental issue for the industry. So I thought that was exciting. And I agree with you that I was excited by the level of audience engagement. I thought people really cared about the topic. They were passionate. They were interested. They had strong opinions. So that felt pretty exciting. I don't know if I would say I was surprised by that because I set a fairly high bar for the industry. You expect them to be knowledgeable and passionate, but still, it was very good to witness. I can't think of anything that particularly, what would have surprised you? Not your panel was a surprise for me, but the panel that was the Cobbler House, Mm. when the first gentleman was talking about his house and getting the construction loan and the difficulty in getting the green valuation and having it not show up in the appraisal. And that was like this 
window into the difficulty of what we're playing with is there's a lack of awareness. And then the day before where Lotus and Lindsay from the Love Shack were t- sitting there talking. You're no. need to explain yeah, Love Shack. Yeah, so it's <laughs> Lindsay Love and Lindsay Shack with a S-C-H-A-C-K or something like that. But it's cute architecture firm. But what was when they were talking and talking about not having any green appraisers in Montana in the area. And it's like we forget first how small the world is that we work in. And then we also forget the movement that we need and the things that are missing and how we kind of connect all the dots and educate and get the network around us that's actually missing in some ways and so I was absolutely amazed when there's she's sitting there saying there's nobody and then when the guy the next day says I can't get the information I need I'm thinking wow this is really new still it's funny it speaks to larger conditions of labor and compensation in the US It's a bit of a digression, perhaps, but I once did a paper on appraising manufactured housing in the U.S. with specific interest in first, making sure that high-quality manufactured housing was appraised properly, and second, ensuring that energy-efficient manufactured housing specifically was appraised properly. And it became clear in the course of that work that there was so little appraiser education, and appraisers faced such challenges in doing proper work, and I wouldn't say inevitably would take shortcuts, but just in some cases would refuse assignments just because it was too challenging to do. And that's a reflection of the fact that they've been squeezed fairly remorselessly. I doubt if it was ever a very lucrative profession, but at this point, you just don't make money at it, or you don't make a lot of money at it. So to take on a difficult assignment with any sort of feature that isn't cookie cutter is kind of a challenge. And it speaks to one of Pearl's core challenges too, because we say our central mission is to make the value of energy efficiency visible in the home, but another secondary mission is to ensure that contractors who do quality work are paid adequately for it, because energy efficiency isn't going to happen unless good quality contractors are getting paid appropriately. And it's the same kind of thing. It's that the market squeezes them. It's a really tough pushback. I liked when Kim from Fort Collins was talking about how they had devised a program and then they had the contractors come in and they chose quality contractors and there was a process in which they were making sure that the work was done correctly and so they're building this safety net education net QA net that's incredibly important to program success and also consumer confidence in the program and that's all across the nation in different states and stuff we built programs and we want to point fingers at how things break and we tend to point fingers at the contractor as if they're the ones that always break it and I don't think that's fair think that we do a lot of we learn a lot of stuff in the process but that was also interesting is how they really put that program together to benefit all the different parties I think that is a very interesting point and now I'm looping back to your original comment about the appraisers because we also point to the appraisers is they can't do their job properly they don't understand they don't have competence but maybe what we need to do to your point is to not point the fingers but to think about what their conditions of work are like and how we can improve that as the industry I have no thoughts about that because I've never thought about it before but I think that's a really good observation it makes me think about the commercial appraisal side okay so on the commercial appraisal side if you don't have a building that you can comp in the surrounding area then you have a different valuation process you can actually go through it may not get you technically what you think you're gonna get but it's actually a process that's been validated and vetted and so when you were thinking about the residential side we don't have a lot of green homes still right so how do you comp something in the neighborhood when you have nothing to comp so is there another pathway for the residential appraiser to actually put some value rather than just saying it's an energy star, it's worth a little bit more, or the buyer will buy that. I'm trying to figure out what would be that pathway. 
the problem with this is that so much of it is new, it all feels like hand-to-hand -hand combat. <laughs> so I met with Fannie Mae two weeks ago, a really smart, bright, educated team of people. If there's ever a complaint that folks at the big banks and the GSEs don't understand energy efficiency and don't really grasp the issues, these people dispelled it. They were really professionals. They were dug into the industry and they knew a lot. They asked wonderful, sharp, probing questions about Pearl and about what we were doing in general. They did, I believe, I'd like to circle back, make the point that they do recognize not only comparables, but the income approach and the replacement approach as well. So that feels to me like something that we should push on a little bit. If we were going to make a push at Fannie Mae, that might be one of the things that we should push harder on because it's so embedded in the banking industry that if you don't have comparables for residential, you basically have nothing. And we are facing the same issue and so is solar. When the first solar panels sprout out in Arkansas suburb, let's say, there are no comps. There are no comps for miles around. And it's not fair. They need an alternative like the income approach. So I think A, that we and renewables kind of have a common ground on this. And B, I think the GSEs are receptive, but we should push it more. Well, and then when you went to the solar, it went back, add, we add the complexity of uh, behavior and how many people live in the house. So we add all these other layers. So we think we fix one thing. We kind of have maybe a solution for this little piece that we see that needs help. And then we add this other layer on top. And then we add this other layer on top. And so that actually reminds me too, that we touched on the consumer a lot in the last few days at the conference, but we didn't talk about much behavior. We really got into the building science and the details of the building science and how do you measure and how do these pieces tie together and how do the parties participate in this contractor versus consumer versus program designer. But we didn't get into behavior other than a few conversations when we were thinking about training. It is so true. We as a building science industry love our slippery slope of technical details. We love to slide down it. And you're absolutely right that everybody, or at least many people in the room, were recognizing that as the big issue and yet we never really dug in. Moving on to Thursday afternoon, we had a panel discussion on healthy homes. Now, how important has that become in the Habitat X narrative? Well, it's an issue which we sure can't leave because it keeps poking us in the ribs. The question of health and home construction really can't be separated. And so that's really what we've learned, that the home is like a tiny ecosystem where you raise your family and where you spend the majority of your life. And it seems quite obvious now, but it has not always been that obvious that the health of that ecosystem is going to affect the health of the people that live in there. So as builders, as home performance specialists, as tradespeople, we're responsible for creating the environment in which relatively vulnerable human beings will spend their lives. And so whether you want to do healthy homes or not, you're actually in charge of people's health. It's one of those things that's not really an option. It's happening with or without us. So Every year we talk it up, it's been a part of the action plan for three years running. We're in the midst of reworking a new action plan for Habitat X. And I can assure you that healthy homes or the nexus of health and home performance is right there front and center. The good news is that we have a pretty long lever. We really can affect how homes affect people because we're building the homes anyway. We're, we're choosing materials anyway. We're designing systems anyway. So we may as well be smart about how we're doing it. And Healthy homes is going to continue to be a big thing for us. Absolutely. The thoughtfulness of this whole process. It was interesting. I think it was at that point or maybe later on that Jacques Toulon, who's the inventor of the FUBOT, which is an indoor air quality monitor, but so much more than that. He revealed, I think, some really 
in-depth inner workings on how he uses data and how he's actually sort of risen to the top of the current suite of the consumer level or inexpensive indoor air quality monitors. What was your impression of what uh, Jacques presented? Jacques is sort of leading the pack with this whole new batch of consumer level IAQ monitors. And there's a dozen of them out there. And what's happened is sensor technology has advanced, processing technology has gotten cheaper. So suddenly for one to $400, and you probably know more about this range than I do, Bill, but for not too much money, there's various sensors you can plop down in your house and get information about mostly about air quality and temperature, humidity and VOCs and particulate and various other things that either directly affect human health or are indicators of human health. But the FUBOT appears to have kind of risen to the top of the pack. There's a couple of sort of flattering reports that came out, one from the Journal of Aerosol Sciences, another from Lawrence Berkeley Lab. Hardly wild-eyed environmentalist publications in either case. They're looking at FUBOT saying, yeah, out of all these monitors, this thing actually is pretty good. And for a couple hundred bucks, you can get pretty good information. Now, what Jacques spoke about, which was of most interest to me, Bill, was not so much about the immediate response it has, which is to say the, the spontaneous readings it has at the moment, which is of value, and it, it has digital readouts and glows different colors depending on what's going on in the room, but that back inside that thing, there's the processing power and enough memory to actually store these readings over a long period of time, and buried in those long-term readings is information that one would not expect. So. If you look at a reading like temperature, humidity, VOCs, or PM 2.5s, particulate floating around, yeah, it's interesting just to track that over time. But one thing that the data scientists like Jacques have discovered is that those things can actually become metrics for something else, for the operation of the house. So you can, for example, look at some long-term readings and recognize that, well, these readings are spiking this time of the day or this time of the week what is going on. And so it may be that there is a time when, when laundry is being done, when cooking is happening, when all the kids are home, when the home office is occupied, when cleaning day happens on Saturday. The things that indicate pollution events, which could adversely affect human health, the FUBOT with its API, which can allow it to connect to and ultimately control various other types of equipment in the house and Stay tuned for that. That's still in development. But FUBA would have the ability to actually control and manage some of this other equipment even before those events take place or as those events are taking place. And so what he's doing is that they're teasing information out of the data, which goes beyond that which the sensors themselves read. That to me is fascinating. So... I think, Bill, there'll come a time when we look back and we can't imagine that people had houses without these kinds of sensors. And I feel fortunate to sort of be there at the inception. Yeah, at the birth of all this. And then, and then we had the inimical Joe Medosh. And I forget whether it was at this point or later on in the conference, he did sort of his flash presentation that was just a blur of in-depth information. <laughs> Joe now works for Hayward Score. Are you familiar with that? You want to talk a little bit about what that is? Because I think that'd be an interesting thing. It is actually like a free, we'll call it a service for anyone. 
Yeah, I think Hayward's score is an interesting concept, and actually you may be in deeper to this than I am. Their intention is to provide a free service, which is linked to the back on the back end to service providers, but they're providing a simplistic, a simplified front end for homeowners to help evaluate the condition of their homes. And this is based not just on IAQ, but on moisture and furnishings, on trip hazards, for example, all the things that actually statistically affect human health in their homes. They're just putting this very friendly front end on it in order to help people participate easily, right? I think it's very hopeful. Yeah. And the way Joe's putting it now is the human is the sensor and it's the diary or the dialogue that you have with this checklist or this questionnaire that can produce some interesting summary results for the individual. So anyone listening, encourage you to go to Hayward Score. Dot com. It's free of charge and you'll get a nice summary report answer. I forget how many questions. It's pretty in-depth, but it asks you to describe how you feel in different situations in the house that you live in, the home that you live in. So it's, it's a very interesting thing. And they've collected some 16,000 points of data at this point and are starting to approach that ability to analyze like Jacques has been doing. Joe's blur of slides was there because as the moderator of this event, I tried to manage everybody to provide as much information as possible in the most palatable version possible. And Joe was a part of a panel discussion and the other two presenters had eight slides each. And Joe said, here's my 52 slides. Right. And I looked at Joe and I said, Joe, you may not. So he came back a couple hours later, said, here's my 42 slides. And I just said, good luck. You have eight minutes. There's a timer. So Joe did spill a lot of information quickly. <laughs> and if anyone listening gets a chance to go to a conference where Joe is presenting, you really got to attend his session. And usually they're standing room only. He just delivers so much information from a fire hose. He's a great man. So as we move into the agenda on Friday, we talked about the real estate update, appraisal, valuation, and certification. That was a very interesting thing. We had Robin LeBaron from Pearl Home Certification and Susan Davison. That was everyone on the panel there? Yeah, that was. I looked at the depth of expertise of those individuals and didn't really want to dilute what they had to say by putting anybody else in the front of the room. Susan's got experience all over California. Really, her background is as an urban planner. She's been involved in the Green Button Initiative in California, testified in front of the CPUC. Real deep experience, again, in that mature market. Some would say it's a market where they've gotten a lot of things wrong, but uh, at least they've been figuring things out. So her experience runs real deep across sort of finance and valuation. Robin, on the other hand, he has taken the audacious step of co-founding with his friend Cynthia Adams, the organization called Pearl Home Certification. And their intent is to build a nationwide certification of that provides a labeling service for existing residential structures. That could relate to new structures too. But what they're doing is working primarily through the real estate community with home sellers, but also through the construction community with contractors who are high-performing upgrades to homes and develop a labeling program that they expect will have a big enough consumer uptake to become a recognized and trusted brand. Not a small task. There's, I don't know, 130 million more or less single family homes in North America. They've just recently completed their second round of funding. They've got several thousand homes under their belt. They're talking about 1 million homes with their label on it in the next five years. And that's what their funders believe. And that's what they're headed towards. And so 
should that work, it could have a tremendous impact. And what the certification essentially does is allow the contractors, but especially homeowners and realtors secondarily, to identify and capture the value of high-performing improvements. Because, you know, Bill, we've talked about this on and off for years that, well, gosh, we know it's a great idea to put in this SEER 17 system or this 97% efficient furnace or insulate your walls to R30, but once you sell the house, nobody actually cares. You get kind of stuck back in the market with a set of comps which aren't relevant and you end up with a basically stranded investment. The guys at Pearl Home Certification are trying to solve that and I think they're going to be pretty good at it. And so I'll be hopeful to see where they go in the next couple of years. They've actually done some studies where they've shown that the Pearl certified homes actually sell for more. They have enough time in the market. I think it was between 2 to 10% more when you're able to have the buyer recognize the value of the invisible assets that make up the home performance. So it's making this invisible things visible in a way through a body, the Appraisal Institute, with one of their forms that, that really puts this into the mainstream, starts to put it into the mainstream. Well, the other piece Pearl is doing, which the other certifications and labels cannot do. For example, there's already Energy Star Homes. There's Home Performance with Energy Star for existing homes. There's HERS ratings, all of which have a lot of traction out there. But those are essentially rating systems, and then that's it. So you get the house rated, and by God, you got a HERS 43, you got an Energy Star label, and what do you do with that? And who notices and cares is always the concern a lot of people have. And what Pearl does is they've provided basically the sales and marketing package, which allows the listing agents or sellers or the contractors to say, it's like, yeah, so it's got this Pearl label, maybe it's got a platinum or a gold badge on it, and they have chosen the precious metals, gold, silver, platinum. But they also provide a set of marketing tools that helps those people, those stakeholders, tell the story out on the market. And I think that is a critical piece, Bill, because it is the weak consumer demand, which sort of hinders the work for the high performance services. And a lot of that's just about understanding and knowledge that if people, when people, buyers or owners recognize really how it's just better to have a house that operates better, then they're willing to pony up and pay for it. We all are. And so it's just a little bit of storytelling going on on the part of the Pearl people. And I think that'll make the difference. I think you're right. And actually, that reminded me when we did our sort of setting the agenda, getting the ideas together in the strategy session, how much emphasis there was on connecting with the consumer to make sure that a market actually exists for us all. Yeah, well, it's cooked into the action plan for 2018. We're going to work on it deeply. Perfect. Perfect. We'll move on to Friday afternoon, where we had the session called The Cobbler's House, How the Best Builders House Their Families. And I actually took part in that, and I was very flattered to be up there and to sort of tell my story of what my wife Marilyn and I are doing to design and build a new high-performing home for ourselves within the next year. So it was a real fun session, and to talk with Casey Murphy, who is actually with Pearl Certification, and he is just about ready to move in to his high-performing home, and Kevin Brenner from Westchester County, New York. He's a very successful builder up there, and he has actually moved into his house, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We gathered the three of you to be a part of this panel because I know at the end of the day, and in this case, at the end of the conference, that talk is cheap. We have a lot of program managers and designers and architects and house builder wannabes in the room. And I looked around and I thought several months ago, 
what are these people actually doing when it comes right down to it, when you're forced to dig into your family savings or incur some debt in the form of a mortgage to build your own house? What are they doing? And so this is an attempt to flush out the pretenders, right, and figure out what people actually do. This will be a part of a probably a two-year initiative as we follow the stories of various owner builders like yourself and see what they come up with. Because I think in the end, you can write standards for these things. And I mean, there's people in the room that actually do write standards that are used by everybody else in the country. That's great. But in the end, what you actually do, I think your actions are going to speak a lot louder than your words. So in your case, Bill, I got the microscope on you. <laughs> It'll be curious to see over the next year what you and Marilyn come up with. And I think in the end, it's the best ground truthing we could ever do. I hope when the microscope's on me, the bright mountain sun is not focusing through that and lensing onto my skin or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> get a little bit of a burn here. Wow, great. So we've spent about 30 plus minutes here talking about the conference. We skimmed through the agenda. Any high points that you feel we might have missed in our discussion? Well, I think one of the best way to skim the high points is to look at the newly released Habitat X journal. There you go. And I think you can probably put a link there on your page, which will send people to it. But the Habitat X journal is being published on medium.com. So in fact, you can go right now and just type into the browser, just medium, M-E-D-I-U-M.com. It's a broad-based publishing platform, which has pretty much every topic under the sun in there. It's a fabulous place to go read. That's where I do a lot of my reading these days. And go in there and just do a search for the terms Habitat X journal. And there's stories in there about almost everything we've talked about here today, Bill. We publish articles there, and we do a version of this every year, though it's been paper before this. And we publish this journal around the time of the conference to help basically spice up the conference and support the conference. So the traditional thing where a presenter walks in and says, well, okay, here's my PowerPoint slides, and they print it on a piece of paper, and then they read their slides, and then you look at a picture of their slides, and I think, man, that's a waste of paper. And so we sort of go the other way towards just honest to God, meaningful, relevant, long-term, long-form journalism. That's what's in those articles. And so there is, in fact, an article about the cobbler's home, some pictures of your and Kevin and Casey's homes. There's a piece in there on the Pearl certification. There's pieces written by every one of the Habitat X fellows, in fact. So check out the journal. It's sort of the follow-on to this very conversation. And shout out to Griffin Hagel for helping you get that up and running and managing the editing of that. It would not have happened without uh, Griffin Hagel coming in about six months ago and said, okay, Dorsey, I'll be the managing <laughs> editor this year. And he has kept my nose to the grindstone. It's been good for both of us. Griffin, a former fellow himself, has stepped up with a sponsorship for a fellowship this year, as did True Tech Tools and Retrotech and Fubot. We got real, real strong supporters this year. But Griffin has been right in there just working as a labor of love. And so... Watch the journal to learn more about what he's doing. In addition to the journal, which is a free resource on Medium to anyone listening, anyone, and please share it because that's part of what we're trying to do is that little quote from my strategy planning table, our little breakout group there with Chandler Von Schrader, who talked about spreading the German of an idea. Well, I suggested that everybody sneeze twice a week with regard to home performance. Anyone who feels the vibe has the understanding, feels this needs to be communicated. And my thing was talk to one consumer and one building-related professional a week. 
try to share this information, try to spread the germ. I think that's a grassroots effort is really going to help. It's that one-in-one communication, which actually coming back around to where we started, it's the human aspect. It's that one-on-one communication. It's being local in front of each other at the Habitat X conference where things really start to gel and take off. I couldn't agree more, Bill. Thanks for shining the light on the Habitat X project. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. Same here. So anyone, again, free resource, the website, habitatx.com, the journal on Medium, Habitat X Journal, conversing with any of the attendees, spreading these ideas, uh, listening to the related podcasts, and then you should really decide next year to come. That's really where it's going to have the most impact on you. And you will change people and you will be changed by going to Habitat X. I guarantee it. Bill, thanks again for your support. It's always great to be here. You're welcome, Chris. So I think we'll wrap up right now. We've covered a lot of ground. Anything else you'd like to cover at this point? I think we've said it. Okay, perfect. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on again. And thanks for everything you do in the team that produces Habitat X. You're very, very welcome, Bill. Let's stay in touch. Absolutely. We'll do this again. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. This episode is made possible by the Blue Collar Roots Network. You can find other trade-oriented podcasts at the Blue Collar Roots Network at bluecollarroots.com. And especially my producer, Brian Orr, fantastic guy who really got me into podcasting. You can blame him for everything you hear today. Don't blame me. So after listening, if you like what you heard and you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, please consider doing so by typing Building HVAC Science into a search bar in any typical podcast service or even just any browser. It'll probably come up with some way that you could listen to this if you haven't already, but subscribe so you can get all the fresh content right as it happens. If you're in the market for any tools or test instruments, take a look at what True Tech Tools carries. In full disclosure, True Tech Tools is my company, but we sell a lot of great test and measurement instruments for technicians and even some IEQ products for homeowners that you might want to take a look at. And here's an inspirational quote to close off this episode. This is by Thomas Elva Edison. Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. So I want to encourage you to keep on trying and let's make this world a better place through anything you can do with HVAC or building science. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Also, if you'd like to get in touch with me, My email is bill at truetechtools.com. That's bill at T-R-U-T-E-C-H tools.com. Thanks again.